0: This is the Power to Podcast, show 84.
1: Giving these kids the opportunity to talk about their learning is what solidifies it for them. And it lets them take some responsibility for their learning. What I notice it decreased is the kid who's kind of hiding at the back who's actually doodling or, you know, faking their way through this problem thinking like, oh, she's not going to call on me because they know.
0: Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. My co-host, Mr. Matt, the Froth Master Rogers. Uh, Matt is not with us today. We are doing some of our summer recordings where I connected with with Morgan Rankman, the Tennessee 2022 Teacher of the Year. And unfortunately, Matt had to step away from this recording because he had friends and family in town. And as always, our number one rule here at Powered Up is family first. And so I, was, uh, I jumped into this conversation by myself. I did my best to fill the void without having Matt's insight and questions and piece of the conversation there. But we jumped into a great conversation with Morgan. As I said, she is the 2022 Tennessee Teacher of the Year. And we really just focus in on, I think, what we would classify as good teaching. Teaching is teaching no matter where you are, no matter where you come from, and no matter what grade level you are in. And so, Morgan really shares a lot of insight into the strategies she uses, how she builds collaboration amongst her students, how she builds capacity for student voice, and as well as just getting students to thinking about their thinking. And so, we talk about her journey as the 2022 Teacher of the Year and about the best things that we can do to make school the best experience for students. So, if you're looking for a conversation that's going to really hit multiple facets, multiple subjects, and and talk about the best ways to instruct students, I think this is going to be a great podcast for you. I learned a ton from Morgan, and there's things that I'm already looking to implement myself as a coach and in the future as a classroom teacher again. So without any further delay, let's jump right into that conversation with Morgan Rankin.
1: This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode.
0: Hi, Morgan. Welcome to the Power Up Podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for giving up an hour or so of your summer to come hang out and talk with us. So to kick things off, please officially introduce yourself. Let us know where you're coming from and just give us a snapshot of your career in education.
1: Sure. I'm Morgan Rankin, and I'm coming to you from Johnson City, Tennessee. We're up in the east corner of Tennessee. I teach in Johnson City Schools. Uh, I was a second grade teacher last year, and I'm transitioning to third grade next year to teach math and science. I actually started my career in Canada about 16 years ago where I was born and raised. I taught there for about eight years, and I've taught. And entering my, my eighth year, ninth year, I don't know. I know, no, not good at counting what I, what I've taught and where I've taught. People ask me, I'm like, I don't know. I did some stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel you on that one. Um, <laughs> so I would love to uh, dig in real quick before we we uh, go into other stuff. Comparison between Canadian public schools, American public schools. Like, is there something maybe very different that someone who doesn't have experience in both would not be aware of, or maybe, uh, just something along those lines.
1: Um, I mean, to me, teaching is teaching. Like what I do Mm -hmm. every day hasn't changed that much when I compare it to, you know, my teacher buddies back in Canada. Um, and it's, I mean, that, like the pendulum swing, just like they do here. And okay. a lot of, we well get the same kind of, like we're hearing a lot about the, the science of reading and how we teach reading has changing here. And they're undergoing the same kind of growth there. Um, but I think it's some of the tangible things, like where I taught, we didn't do a lunch program and things like that. Um, but a lot of the social needs were taken care of in other ways, um, just because it's just a different... Just a different funding model, just the way funds right. move. Um, the testing requirements—they weren't uh, every year. They're in Ontario. They were grades three, six, and nine. Um, and so that—that that was a—that's a different focus because obviously, when you teach a tested grade here, that's you hit third grade, and it's—it's it's different. And everybody has yep. their test after that. Um, whereas where we were, it's really only those third grade, sixth grades and ninth grade teachers that were sweating it every year. Um, and I guess you know, similar kind of like weights when you're a testing teacher. Um so that's not that different. Um early education is a little different in Ontario. We start with a junior kinder pardon program that is not required um but most people choose to attend and it's a full day every day. Um wow. and I think that's a huge help to parents and I mean I think that pays off really well for kids. Um I'm trying to think some other differences. I mean Right now, obviously, like in Canada, we kind of take the opposite stance that we're seeing here where some of the discussions about um, racial um, discrimination and inequality is something that, you know, it, that's a hot button topic here. And it's kind of the opposite in Canada where they take the opposite stance where they choose to to make it something that is a topic of conversations in classrooms and a focus and teachers are trained to deal with it. And mm-hmm. We're obviously entering a, a very political um or politicized debate about these kinds of things in the classroom right now,
0: right, interesting. Yeah. so so you're moving from second grade to third grade, and you said for math and science, mm-hmm. so are you moving from a completely self-contained second grade classroom to a third grade classroom where you'll have multiple homerooms coming through your your classroom?
1: I am, and I've never done that before, so my entire career I've been self-contained. Um, and I'd never heard of that until we moved here. So that was, that was I was, like, oh. mm-hmm. um, and so, so I'm, what, I'm what's, some, what's
0: something that you're, what is, what's one of your, you know, I don't want to say fears, but what, what is something that you are anticipating as being more difficult being a part of this now system where you are switching? So when I started fifth grade, I started as departmentalized. We all taught reading to our homerooms and then I taught math three times To my and the other two homerooms towards the tail end of my fifth grade career, I was completely self-contained with the kids the entire day. So kind of an opposite approach. So what are you you anticipating or what do you feel like you are putting most of your focus on in terms of being different that you feel you're going to have to get used to quickly?
1: Um, I think the relationship building piece, I mean, when you have those kids for six hours a day, it's just really easy to fit in those conversations and get to know their likes and their dislikes and their interests and their siblings names and their dogs' names and, and all those little pieces that you use to build a relationship. So having, you know, reduced time to do that and having to do that with double of the kids, that's something that I want to be very conscious of when I start the school year. I don't think it'll be a problem. It's just something I might have to work a little harder at, whereas before it was just a really natural process that's a strength for me. So that's something that I I think maybe I'll be more conscious of than I've had to be in the past. Um, I'm very excited to be able to just hone in on two subjects. I really enjoy teaching all the things, but it can be really overwhelming and it always feels like there's something getting pushed out. Um, You know, it's like, oh, today we got all our science in, but we didn't quite finish all of the math activities I had planned Or, Whoops, there goes social studies for another day. Good thing we got all our reading in. So um, I'm hoping that I feel a little le- less like I'm juggling all day long, um, but a little conscious that I'll just be juggling probably two times a day instead of once. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see. Do you have any words of advice?
0: So <clears throat> the one benefit you'll have is you'll, in theory, teach everything twice. So when you teach it you know, for the first half of the day, uh, and you're then doing the same lesson again in the second half of the day. You have the opportunity to kind of reflect and fine tune in in what you did. Um, which, as a self-contained teacher, in theory, you have to wait an entire year to try to redo that lesson or try to improve it. Um, so the reflect, I think, being a reflective teacher when you're teaching mul- the same thing multiple times a day, whether you know, in this case, departmentalized as elementary or as a secondary teacher where you're definitely doing it multiple times a day. Uh, Reflective practice, I think, is one of your best skills. Um, The thing that I think teachers get hung up on at times is fire drills, assemblies, may make your morning class a day ahead or a day behind the other class. Um, So it's not something to stress about. I wouldn't worry about trying to catch the one up over the other Um, and also embrace that maybe sometimes your morning class falls a day behind of your afternoon class, because then your morning class can in theory, get the better product of a lesson instead of they are always the guinea (laughs) pigs and then the second half is right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So they're getting, they're getting a little bit of the, uh, the second, the second go around on, on lessons at times. Um, the relationship piece is a little bit more challenging, uh, being a problem, your, your schedule will probably be a little bit more rigid. So like you said, there are times where social studies never happens, whereas now your lesson is going to have a, a clear end time. Um, so, you know, that will definitely be something for you to get used to. When I moved into teaching STEM, I was, I had five classes a day, grades one to five. So it was a very rigid schedule. Um, and something that I did was, uh, I, I have an Apple watch, I would set a countdown timer to when I wanted to uh, start my closure. And sometimes in a STEM class, closure was like, clean all your crap up, you gotta get out of here, I have another class coming in. <laughs> or it was you know that, that closure piece to the lesson. But having a timer set for when that had to start was important for me because um, I kinda predetermined it before the class depending on what the lesson was, what the plan for the day was. So it was, you know, usually within three to five minutes of when they needed to leave the class, but having that buzz on my wrist, knowing I had to end it then versus trying to watch the clock, forgetting to watch the clock or saying, ah, no, I can let him go for two more minutes. um, That was just a a system for myself to kind of stay on pace. Um, But I think what you'll find is you'll, you'll fit, you'll fit into the groove of it. Just like having your own self-contained class, the relationship piece the biggest challenge is just more names, more faces, more kids to connect with, but it, it also makes it an enjoyable piece. So now when you go to the cafeteria, when you do grade level activities, you feel like you know them more. That was something that as a fifth grade team, we missed when we moved away from that. Uh, we felt like we didn't know the kids as much. So then we started switching by units so that they still had a taste of the other teacher for you know maybe three months of a science unit. We're doing more grade level collaborative activities. We wanted to do because we felt like we wanted to know the entire community. So that's a piece that I that I always really enjoyed. Um, so moving from second grade to third grade, not a huge difference in kids, but <clears throat> I think the argument can be made for any grade level. But I did start out teaching second grade, and I felt like second grade was one of the years where you saw incredible growth out of kids. You know, when you think about When you compare a fourth grader to a fifth grader, they kind of look the same, talk the same, relatively the same amount of maturity level. Um, But when you compare a first grader to a third grader, they seem like, you know, it's a it's a huge jump. Kindergarten, the first not as big. So second grade, they're coming in as those first graders and they're leaving as third graders. So. What do, you, what do you think are things that you mastered as a second grade teacher that will be vital in you continuing and bringing to your third grade classroom, whether it be classroom management, instructional style, those types of things?
1: Um, well, I think I was actually really lucky because I came from third grade to second grade, which that, that was a tough transition going from end of your third grade to the beginning of your second grade. Um, that was interesting. But that really gave me some really good insight into where I needed those second graders to be because I knew who I was sending them on to and the curriculum demands and the stamina demands and the time management demands that these little these little babies were going to be facing. So, And I wanted to make sure they were ready because I knew what those teachers needed to be able to do. I knew that rounding was going to be, you know, everyone was going to be pulling their hair out about rounding that the beginning of the school year. So it gave me some really good insight into what I could do to help prep these kids to move on and I think the demands of third grade are really high I think it's a really difficult transition for a lot of kids um and I think it helps that I we pushed those little second graders I was lucky too because my teaching partner moved down with me and we worked really really well together and so a lot of those third grade practices that we had put in place we were able to push um in mold into you know so they still fit these little second graders I don't want to say pushing like we were making them into something that they weren't ready to do um but we were able to mold it into a way that was appropriate for second grade but we knew we had this big picture in mind for them so that I'm I'm excited to be able to kind of do that again and to loop with my kids so it is helped that I that I've left third grade to move down to second grade and then I'm going back up to what I know I'm actually even going back to my same room which is kind of funny so it's, I'm just stepping back into some old shoes, is what it feels like, but with some some extra insight already into my kids and and where they're coming from, which is which is something I really appreciate.
0: What is what is something that you feel is a classroom management strategy that you didn't use when you first started that is probably second nature at this point that you think our newer teachers could benefit from from hearing and thinking about as they go into. I, I always like to ask people to provide advice to year two teachers, because year one is just literally figuring out everything and trying to survive. Whereas year two, you have time to think back on everything that you did and take more of a intended approach. So anything that you think is, is hugely important from a classroom management standpoint.
1: Yeah. So Oh, year two teachers. That's such a great that's such a cool way to think of that. Because those year two teachers, like you you think you you go into it thinking like, I know what I'm doing now. And then what you realize is now you know what you don't know. It's actually even harder. So take a deep breath, year two teachers, you got this. Um so I think my best classroom management advice is like I started off my my career with like, you know, doing the stickers and the prize box and the, you know, like all of the things like that and the class dojos, and I've kind of tried all of those things and ultimately nothing really sticks for me because it ends up being an extra responsibility and teaching already is keeping track of so many things all at once while also trying to educate at the same time so to me it just always worked better just to know my kids and have really clear expectations in place so starting that school year off yes you're you're going to hit some academics and some review activities but you're going to be planning your classroom management strategies weaving them in the kids may not even necessarily realize that they're learning the rules you should have some specific crystal clear conversations about what your classroom rules are or your agreements um, and consequences if you're not following them um, but ultimately it's it's that relationship building it's your kids getting to know one another and getting to know you and you seeing the dynamics of the flow of the classroom and what's happening when you know two specific students are together maybe that should happen more often maybe it should happen a little less things like that so I think always 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 at balls down knowing your students which i know is hard when you have like you said five classes um, from or classes from first grade to fifth grade that's really intimidating but ultimately if you know those kids they're going to work so hard for you all day long for you and they're going to make they're going to make it fun if they like you they're going to help you make it fun and then you have to worry a little bit less about bringing in bells and whistles and fancy things and stuff like that it, it lets you run your classroom smoothly i think when you know your kids Mm-hmm. And then you don't have to worry about stickers and mini racers and death pets and
0: points and, yeah, and, and, and all the stuff. And those, those systems do work well, but it's a, you have to commit to it. Like you said, it it becomes an extra responsibility. And I found that <clears throat> it was something I constantly forgot about. I wasn't invested in doing it. I wasn't consistent. And if you're not consistent, it's not going to do anything. And so um, I steered away from those as well because I just knew I couldn't commit myself to keeping that at the forefront of of what I was thinking about on a daily basis. And so it doesn't mean you can't try it, but, you know, I would venture to agree with you that if you know you're not going to be able to commit to giving out Class Dojo points on a a regular basis multiple times a day, it shouldn't be something that you use. I mean... I can think back to my first couple of years when I had the kids sitting in tables, I would awards, you know, points to the tables that were ready faster. And like those, I just fell off the bandwagon with, with being consistent with, whereas when you just boil down to focusing on the relationships and those clear expectations, I think that has a lot of, a lot of power. And even finding systems that the students can take ownership in. So when I first started our, our, our school was really into the the bucket filling theme, that, that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of embraced that my first couple of years and I had a bucket for each kid and they could write each other notes like, you know, you did a great job on this or whatever. And my, I think it was my first year, no one was doing it. And so I spent a morning and I wrote every single kid a note and I left it in there and that kind of sparked it. And then the students really were involved in doing it. And so I could completely step away from that. And that's not a specific classroom management piece, but that's a classroom culture piece that fits into that management. And then when things slow down, I would write everyone a note again and it would kind of rejuvenate the process. So finding ways that you can get the students involved, I think is is really important in, in that. Um, and, and your role can kind of be just that, you know, rejuvenation piece of, of getting that. Um, how does, how does classroom collaboration come out in your classroom? What are you doing to, what's something very specific and tangible that you can point to that you incorporate into your lessons or that you incorporate into the, the structure of your classroom to, to get your students to collaborate?
1: We use a fair amount. I mean, it's hard coming out of COVID. It's hard. It's still a bit of a a shift from what it's like before COVID strategies and like Mm -hmm. in COVID strategies and now post, well, I don't know if we're post COVID, but, you know, semi-normal life, I guess we'll call it. Um, So we were able to go back to a lot more partner work and things like that. Um, And that, that was so helpful. I forgot how much we used that before and how much it really helps my students grow when they have a peer that they're working with. So one of my favorite strategies is especially in math is we would always start with a higher order thinking question, usually a word problem or an equation that they had to complete in kind of a, but it was presented in kind of a mysterious way, missing missing numbers in the middle or things like that. Um, And all of my students would work on that. And what I would have them do is either partner up and take a look at each other's solutions and then give each other some feedback about it, or I would pull a couple of kids who did something interesting, maybe not even necessarily got to write an answer, but there's some really cool thinking on there or showcasing like different strategies. And I would have my kids give feedback to them and I would give them the framework of like, what I like about this before I would ask for anything that they could do to make their work even stronger. But I always made sure to make it a really positive experience for getting, you know, getting your work pulled up and standing up in front of the class with it and walking us through your thinking. That's probably one of my favorite collaborative tools and it really promotes some really interesting discussion. And then by like December, it's just seamless. Mm-hmm. And that's always something that, um, you know, people notice when they're in my classroom is how my kids feel comfortable talking to each other about their work and how when someone that even like a peer can redirect them and that they all have some language to do it in a way where they're not making that other person who made a mistake feel small. And that's something that's really important to me is that we're, we're always collaborating and that we're using each other as vehicles for learning But in a way that makes that person feel like, oh, I got this, not, oh, I can't believe I made that mistake.
0: Right. So, pushback that we'll often hear with that is that takes too much time. So, building in that capacity for students, for giving a student the stage to showcase their learning, to show how they solved it. um, I have to get through my curriculum, I have to get to the next lesson. So, what would you say? How do you find the time for that? Or, how do you see time being a factor? in building in all of that, those strategies. I agree with you. I'm on the same page (laughs) as you, but just playing devil's advocate for how, how do you see time becoming a factor with that? Maybe when you start, you talked about how it's seamless towards the end of the year. Like what does that pendulum look like?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that is painful. It's slow at the beginning of the year, but everything is painful and slow at the beginning of the year, especially with the littles. I mean, it's, if you're working with older kids, it's going to be something, a process that you can implement a lot faster. And I mean, it's easier too when you have a smaller class. So it may be a tool that you use a little bit less when you have a lot of kids and you have a smaller amount of time. It might be something you focus on maybe a couple of days a week. Um, I I totally understand the pressure of having to get through all of your curriculum pieces. That's a huge weight on teachers and it's something that you can't take lightly. Um, But giving these kids the opportunity to talk about their learning is what solidifies it for them and it lets them take some responsibility for their learning. What I noticed it decreased is the kid who's kind of hiding at the back, who's actually doodling, or, you know, faking their way through this problem thinking like, oh, she's not going to call on me, because they know that I may call on them, even though it's not fully correct. And they know that that's not going to be a big deal, that we're going to find something really cool about their thinking. So making it a safe process is going to make it more valuable and more efficient as well. And it's going to get those kids that are Nervous about sharing their thinking, or don't understand it, and are never going to tell you. You're going to have to find it out for yourself later when they hand their work in. So this is a really quick way to get a good gauge on who knows what. I use whiteboards usually as the best tool for me, especially for math. And so they're all working. It gives me a really quick picture who's got like who's got a strategy to get them to the end of that problem. And usually these problems are based in curriculum. It's either a review from something we did yesterday that I noticed we need to hone in on more or it's setting up the learning that we're going to do in a few minutes. And ultimately it means I'm talking less. The more I'm talking, the less we're learning and that's a problem. So to me, it's a really great, it's a really great type, uh, sorry, it's a really great trade-off because your kids are doing more work. They're thinking more about other people's learning and the depth is is deeper, I find, than just when I'm presenting a problem and walking them through it step-by-step. So I think you need to have a mix of both. Um, but I think don't be afraid to make that trade, you know, just start off with it once a week and see how it goes, see how it goes. And except that sometimes it's going to be messy and sometimes it's going to be crickets, especially, you know, as you get up in the upper grades and it becomes a little less cool to answer your teacher. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you should try.
0: Yeah. You mentioned about um, people noticing your, how your kids communicate with each other. And, and when I was in fifth grade and we would have, the superintendent visit or different administrators from outside of our building. And they would ask me, Oh, you know, what are your kids working on right now? It was usually almost always student centered small group. That was my, my main instructional style. I would just say, go, go ask them, go talk to the kids. And I would very, very often hear, I can't believe how mature of a conversation I had with your fifth graders. And I I truly believe it's because I forced them to constantly collaborate and communicate with each other. um, And it just, they become better communicators. So one thing I will say that I was, I did not do, and something that I've come to realize honestly through hosting this podcast is I've had a lot of teachers talk about, um, you know, having different talking points. And I I think that's the phrase that you just used. Um, So what what are key talking points or what are key, Um, phrases that you explicitly teach your students in terms of explaining their thinking or collaborating with peers that you think really helps develop them to become better communicators
1: so I keep it really simple for my second graders I ask a lot like what do you notice Um, what do you like about their work what do you think is unusual about their work um, or what could they do to make it even stronger? And I make I mean, that even stronger is really important to me because I want them to not necessarily think about always being right. Also, obviously that's the goal. I would like them to all get hundred percent on their state tests at the end of the year or their district test. But I mean, I'm human, I'm going to make mistakes. And ultimately what I'm want them to have is that mental framework that making mistakes is okay. It's what you do afterwards with that learning that you still push to make it stronger. So. It's for me, it's a lot of the mindset, and I you choose those words carefully. Um, and those are the words I look for my students to use as well. So, you know, I like the way this student did this. Um, they could do this to make it stronger, they could add this to their work, or they could take this away from their work, depending on kind of what subject you're talking about. So, keep it simple, it doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't even necessarily have to be an anchor chart, it just takes some practice.
0: Awesome. Uh, so you graciously left out. In your introduction of yourself, that you were the 2022 Tennessee Teacher of the Year,
1: <laughs> I did, I did. Oh, so, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I am. <so> that's me. <laughs>
0: you're, you're just that gracious. You don't. You don't <laughs> um, so, just first of all, talk about the experience. We've had a couple other teachers of the year uh, in your class, as well as other years, uh, as well as many finalists. I was a finalist in 2019 myself. What was that experience like? How did your journey begin? Um, and just kind of talk about, you know, um, what your year has been like so far as that, that official teacher of the year. So uh, my, my journey actually began on the last day of school. My classroom presented me with the nomination form that every parent had filled out and completed and sent in. And then mine started like the following December. Um, but so just tell us about your journey. Tell us the experiences that you've been able to have as a teacher of the year.
1: So in Tennessee, and this was, something. well, one, we don't do this in Ontario. So when I moved here, I like, I remember when we were doing nomination forms my first year and I was like, oh, this is cool. And I just thought it went kind of school level. And then, it, and then, I, then I learned it went district level and then I just kind of stopped thinking about it. So it wasn't until I had, um, I had a close friend who went all the way to the top nine in Tennessee that I really realized like what a big deal this was. Um, so it was a couple of years after her, she's Dr. Nancy Miles. She's phenomenal. You ever get a chance to
0: you'll have to connect us
1: i you know i will you would a conversation with Nancy Miles. everyone leaves a little smarter a little happier um so it was i think it was mid-year 2021 and um so it's it's meaningful because your colleagues nominate you so i mean those people that see like the work you've been doing for that year and they're the ones that initially recognize you and so that's pretty cool because they they're the ones that saw me like Busted my rear end teaching remotely that year for half a year and then switching halfway through the year to in class um so that was pretty cool and so you get that nomination at the school level and then you get your essay questions and so you, you write your essays and it goes to the district level and there's a panel that they evaluate um the nominees from each school and they, they select three teachers at kind of each band level of elementary and middle school and high school to represent johnson city schools and um then you're kind of sent off to the regionals and same thing you you hone in on your essay answers you might get an extra question it depends on the year what the what they've decided to do and I th- I feel like the questions changed a little bit but that might have been like a paperwork issue not necessarily like a they actually change from step to step um so it's a lot of essay writing it was that was something I didn't necessarily realize was the amount of time I would have to spend like just reflecting about my classroom and um writing about it but it's I mean, the reflecting piece was fun for me. That's something I kind of do naturally. And so it was really neat to sit down and do. Um, and my husband edited them, edited them for me a lot. We had some fierce debates over some sentence structure and topics and examples and things like that. And so then they hone it down, I think, to top 27 and then top nine. And then the top nine, you go to a ceremony, which it was ours was actually in person, which is exciting. and. They nominate a um, three grand division winners and then also a teacher of the year. And I mean, every time, every step through this process, I didn't expect to go any further. I mean, I work with some of the most accomplished people I've ever worked with in my career. They're remarkably dedicated and knowledgeable and professional teachers. So you know, kind of each step away, I'd meet more people and be like, wow, they're so smart. These people are so great. And then I keep going. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And I remember. I remember feeling a little disappointed when I didn't win the East Grand Division. I was like, Oh, well, that's okay. And then they started reading excerpts from my essays. And there was one line in it. And I, my husband and I, we actually argued about it that, you know, teacher strong, Tennessee strong is teacher strong. And I'm so glad he told me to keep it. And I'm so glad I did because that's when they read that sentence, I knew that it was me. And I still like, even now, like I'm still in a bit of disbelief and it's been like almost a year. Like it's just the coolest process to be recognized by other incredibly accomplished teachers in Tennessee. I mean, most of this panel was also teachers that selected me to represent teachers this year. So I take that responsibility really seriously. Um, I try to be really careful with my words when I'm on social media because I'm representing teachers that you know maybe don't think exactly the same as me, but I know we're all in it for our students and for our colleagues. Um, but it's you know, you also have to be careful too because there's some hard things that need to be said and you hope that people are listening, right? Um the the coolest part I think probably has been getting to meet the other state teachers of the year, um, hearing about how different their experiences have been. Like have some states they have sabbaticals and some states are more like me where we just keep doing the normal with like extra things added in. Um some kind of have like a weird mishmash. Um it's so that's really interesting hearing what everyone else's experiences as well. Um, and getting a chance to meet with other people that have kind of walked through this journey as well is really valuable because it's almost hard to understand until you've gone through it. I'm sure you have kind of similar feelings, like just knowing the ins and outs and the bit of the pressure that comes with it, which is a good pressure, it's not a negative thing at all, but just you know, weighing your words and making sure that you're representing yourself and your school district and your state in the best light possible and Showcasing the great things that are going on in education around you. Um, But getting a chance to talk about some of the hard parts of teaching with other people that are walking the same walk with you is incredibly valuable. And so we've had Washington Week, which that was, I mean, we got to have the White House. Like, that's just the coolest thing ever. Um, And I mean, I'm a Canadian. Like, I never thought I would be in the White House. I'm a Canadian. So that was pretty cool. Um, And I think like like going to Congress and getting to meet with people in, you know, members of Congress and talk to them about like schools and kids and just opportunities to network with people and actually have a chance to talk about the kids in your state and what they need and the teachers in your state and what they need and the great things we're doing because they don't necessarily know. Like they have so many things that are going on in the state that they're responsible for. and So this is your chance to actually, you know, say what what's happening on the ground and what that what that impact is throughout education. So that's pretty cool.
0: Absolutely. It it definitely is a it's it's neat how different states are different. I have I've come to learn that and and um the importance of it and and the responsibility that comes with it. You know, when we when I was the finals for Pennsylvania, it was similar thing. It was an award ceremony, it was a couple day conference. And <clears throat> The day they announced the winner, they ask each each finalist to bring a student along to do kind of like an introduction speech for that teacher. So we were at the final award ceremony. It was the student that I taught. Um, he was in the class that nominated me and his mom and dad were there with, with us. And at lunch, the, the mom starts apologizing to my wife because she said, I had no idea that there was any responsibilities that came along with winning. <laughs> She said, "I thought it was just an award." She said, "If he wins, I'm so sorry, because uh, we were there with my my six month old son at the time. Um, so uh, so luckily, I didn't win because my wife is looking at me. She's like, what are you going to give up if you win this thing?'" Um, but it it is a it is a good responsibility that that comes with it because, like you said, you have the opportunity to talk to politicians and leaders that have a direct impact on what happens in education, but aren't in education. On a daily basis, themselves. Um, has this afforded you opportunity to work more closely with teachers, or to be involved with professional development um, within your district or with other teachers?
1: So, um, yes and no. Um, they Tennessee, um, they kind of use us it, like they use us as like a support system for when it's when there's new programs coming and things like that. So. Um, so, you know, I get to participate in some panels and things like that. One of the things that I got to do that was really interesting is we, um, overhauled our funding model this year. So, um, we moved to TISA. Um, do I remember what that stands for now? No, I was eating and sleeping and breathing TISA for several months. Um, and so I got to chair the teacher subcommittee because they had, I think, 18 subcommittees to meet and talk about the, the things that our current funding model, um, like what we needed we didn't necessarily look at our current funding model but really like what the changes were and our priorities and where we really think we needed to spend our education dollars in Tennessee and that was that was an, a nerve-wracking for me I've never chaired a subcommittee let alone one that was everything was being recorded and released for public comment and so I think we were all really conscious of that because we were representing teachers and we wanted to make sure that it came across it like every single one of these requests and recommendations we're coming um, from the lens point of what our students needed, That yes, we do, we need to increase teacher pay. Like that's something I think is incredibly important, but even that was coming from the viewpoint of like, we need to retain our strongest teachers. We need to attract strong teachers and we need to attract people to the field of teaching itself. Because a lot of us could already see this coming down the pipeline, the burnout, um, everyone's feeling really crispy and that there's going to be some people, some really talented teachers that either take a break from teaching for a while or leave the field. Um, So that was really rewarding, kind of directing those conversations and keeping us on track and keeping us focused on ultimately like what we wanted to recommend to the state legislators for that funding model. So that was a really cool opportunity, which at first I was dreading it a little bit because it's like, I don't know, I don't know how we fund, I just teach, my paycheck shows up, someone hands me this money for buying supplies every year. so that it was intimidating at first, but ultimately ended up learning a lot. And it was it was neat to be, it was neat to have that opportunity to talk with all these different teachers from across Tennessee. A lot of them I, I get to see at our teacher advisory committee meetings regularly, which is nice. But, I mean, we had CTE teachers, middle school teachers, elementary school teachers, um, specialist teachers, like music teachers. So it was just great having all of these different walks representing so that we could really make sure we were making recommendations that would fit our kids from pre k all the way up to high school.
0: That is a really, really neat opportunity. So I want to transition our conversation into a segment we do with most of our guests called our Lesson Lens, uh, where we can try to get a snapshot of what it looks like a little bit more in your classroom. So I have some questions to go through with you. And, but feel free to take this kind of any way that you want as we, as we jump into the conversation. So question number one, is it a unit overview, a long-term project, or a single lesson you would like to tell us about?
1: Um, I guess single lesson.
0: Okay. Uh, what is the grade level? What is the subject area? And if there's a particular time of year, uh, essential to doing this lesson.
1: Um, I'm going to keep it kind of general, this whole, like, I am gonna keep it kind of general, like the, like the okay. specific lesson piece. I've always found that hard to be like, this is the lesson that represents me as a teacher. To me, it's right. more of a, like day-to-day nitty gritty, mm-hmm. um, what we're doing. So I guess we'll focus on some math and right. maybe we'll do adding and subtracting. So we're, okay. we're in some two digit or to three digit adding subtracting. So that's always our biggest challenge in second grade math.
0: Okay. So you kind of hinted at the objectives, but are there any other specific objectives for this that you're you're really um, looking for your students to achieve, or is it just to be able to complete those operations?
1: I am going to be looking for my students to be able to represent their thinking, and it could be in um, one specific way for them or that they are ready to show it in multiple ways.
0: Okay. So during the lesson, what are the students actively doing to work towards those objectives?
1: Lots of math. We're gonna be doing lots and lots and lots of math. So um, we're gonna be looking at math in a couple of different ways. It could be that they're presented with a place value picture and asked to add them that way. It could be that we have a word problem that we're working on. It kind of depends what happened the previous day and what that lesson went and how, or how that lesson went and what I know we need to focus on more. Um, cause there's always that, you think, you know, where it's going and then they roll into it and they either nail it already and you're like, okay, this is going to be great. Or you can see that there's a deficit, especially these kids post post COVID where we've had some, we've had some funny things pop up in the last couple of years where it's like, oh, okay. Like I had some kids this year that didn't know base 10 blocks, which I was like, well, that's a new one for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's funny. So during, uh, during the lesson, what is your role in ensuring their success?
1: So I think you have kind of two roles. One, you are you are delivering content. Ultimately, I'm hoping that there's more kid talk than teacher talk. But ultimately, it is my job to deliver the content. But it's also my job to leave a good amount of room for my students to do their own thinking and have some conversations about learning. So questions are really what my biggest responsibility are. Is I'm going to be asking a lot of questions. Sometimes it's just simple. What do you notice? What do you think is happening here? And sometimes it's, a little bit more subject specific or, or actually action specific. Like, why am I doing this? What are you doing here? Why do you think we need to move this or change this? Or what's going to happen if I do X, Y, or Z? So really it's questioning.
0: What? How do you reflect and evaluate your <clears throat> ratio of teacher talk to student talk? Because it's really easy to let the teacher talk take over and be much more prevalent. Um, is there anything over the years that you've you've done to really critically evaluate how much teacher talk versus student talk time you're giving?
1: I think, I mean, thinking consciously before a lesson about your questioning strategies. And then as you become stronger at that, it happens a lot more organically and it's not something you have to spend so much time on, but really like thinking carefully about what kind of roadblocks you think your students are going to run into and what are the things that you think you can do to extend their learning or what you're going to have to do to reteach and what questions you can ask to just evaluate that, first of all, and then also what questions you're going to ask to drive the learning. That, I think, is probably one of the more valuable pre-thinking, pre-lesson plannings you can do is actually plan out your questions. There's nothing wrong with having a list of questions in your, your lesson plan. Um, I think that, that you're just going to get more of an impact. If you if you do that rather than if you think you're going to be able to come up with them on the fly, maybe. But I think you're going to find you will you will end up talking more than asking, even if your intent is to roll in asking lots of questions. So it's just it's a it's a shift in thinking that is just practice it like most things in teaching, and then soon it just becomes organic, and you will have to spend less time feeling like you're scripting questions. I mean, put them on sticky notes if you have to. There's everyone loves a good sticky. All
0: right. great great answer. Um, so last question. Uh, what advice do you have for yourself the next time you teach this lesson? So kind of goes along with what I just asked you. But what are things that you've done to um, improve, uh, just improve the lesson overall?
1: So I'm always, whatever I'm thinking about my teaching, I'm always asking myself is how can I, how can I push this further? Because ultimately I want my students to master this content, but in a way that I know that they can handle, you know, bigger numbers or multi-step. or um how can we how can i how can i get them to thinking in a more abstract way or um in a more creative way even so i'm just i'm always looking for opportunities to find a way to twist that learning and make it a little bit more unusual because it's really easy especially in math to kind of settle into like here's the equation here's the word problem what do we do this is the specific right answer and i find too that a lot of kids roll in thinking math is either not fun or scary And math is neither of those things. Math is actually like really interesting. Like my second graders always want to talk about negative numbers and, you know, that's not in my standards, but I'm going to, we're going to take a few minutes and entertain that fact that like there are numbers under zero, like guys, these are real. And like, there are some students in everyone's year, you know, everyone's a while, they're ready for those conversations, And so it might be something we have as a small group conversation, but I think it's just really important as you reflect back on your teaching is what are some pieces that you can add in and also like, what can you take out? Like, whatever you, what are you noticing? And maybe even not necessarily just for this year, but over the past few years, what have your students rolled in already knowing that you can start not spending your time on making your lessons more efficient and the flow even better so that you can cover more ground in the lesson.
0: Yeah. The, the, what you're just saying here, I think, um, you know, as elementary teachers we're the Jack of all trades, there's so much more than our content, but, um, you know, at times I think it is really important for us to be content experts. And I, 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 as a, as a fifth grade teacher, math was my, my department for while we were departmentalized and I'm certified for middle school math as well. And that, that understanding of number sense and math sense is so important. And it's unfortunately something that I don't think Happens enough in early elementary years, like having students understand that there are numbers below zero, even if they don't remember what the pattern is, they don't remember that negative one is first. That understanding is so important for when you go to approach it. You know, it's the same with, I would so commonly, students would so commonly come to me thinking that the ones place is the first place value. Whereas if they were just taught from the beginning that the ones place is to the left of the decimal point, it would have had a huge impact on my my curriculum in fifth grade because I had to do an entire. I would typically always do an entire lesson on putting numbers up on the board or writing out a number and having them write it and say where is the decimal point. And there were students that didn't realize in the number five hundred and four that the decimal point was there. We just don't have to write it because of the way that we the way that we write our numbers in in our you know, in English or or whatever that, that sense is. So just that number sense and understanding that the decimal point is there, that there is a number below zero. Um, there are numbers between one and two, you know, they do exist. We just don't look at them yet. Um, so I, I think that's so important for students to learn those number sense skills, um, even if they're not mastering it, but just being exposed to those conversations and, you'll have, like you said, you might have four or five students that legitimately could probably dive deep into negative numbers and taking that five or 10 minute conversation to enrich them in front of the whole class is benefiting other students. Even if they're not going to understand it at the same level, they're still going to be exposed to it and just understand that there is something there. So I think that's, I think that's so important.
1: Yeah. You bring up something really cool there too, just thinking about how like that's why those conversations between teachers are so important. Like, you know, sitting down and looking like a standard and where it starts in kindergarten and where that standard gets those kids in, you know, fifth grade or sixth grade or wherever your school ends or even beyond is so important because there's just things that as a second grade teacher, I may teach them a specific way, but then the third grade teacher might be like, actually, if you do it that way, that makes it really hard for me, you know, the next year. And I think those conversations are so important because it's really easy to get like, locked into what your standard is and what your expectations are for those kids at that grade level. So, I mean, you don't, I, it's so hard because you can't be an expert in every grade level, but having conversations with your colleagues about what they're doing in their classrooms and how you can help support them for the years coming up, I think are really
0: important. Yeah. Cause you, like you said, you get locked into your content, you get locked into, I need to make sure that my kids can add two digit numbers with two digit numbers and, you know, language like you always start in the ones place. If that language was just replaced with, you always start on the right. Now, when I go to teach adding numbers with decimals, it's the same strategy. You start on the right. You don't start in the ones place. Um, you know, I can remember being a part of a committee where we were talking about district-wide curriculum, and you know, I didn't realize that my fifth-grade science lessons were impacting the eighth-grade science teacher that was uh, the students were being tested, stay tested in eighth grade. But that was for curriculum from fifth. Through eighth, So the way I taught, what I taught was important to that eighth grade teacher that was kind of wrapping up that, that testing year. So those, those conversations are really important for districts to, to organize. So our last segment is called the exit ticket. Same four questions we ask every guest every week. Question number one, what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better?
1: get to know them. Honestly, like you just, you have to get to know those kids, their likes, their dislikes, the things that make them tick. Um, and it's, it's different for every kid. And it's so hard, especially it got hard over the last two years. Cause I don't, I mean, I think we all just feel like time has changed in the last two years. Like what I used to get done in a day, everything seems to take twice as long and, or I have double the responsibilities. I'm not sure what it is, Um, but it got harder, you know, to eat lunch with your kids or to have a recess buddy or to, you know, make those like little extra things, but that's, what's going to make a kid feel happy at school, safe at school, welcome at school. And it's hard sometimes there's language barriers, there's cultural barriers, there's interest barriers, but if a kid sees or notices you going the extra mile, just to appreciate something that they enjoy as well. That's just it's gonna pay off for months. Like you will get months out of noticing like an action figure on a kid's T-shirt or like a band that they're always talking about or you know their favorite singer or even just their favorite color or the food they like. um, Or giving them opportunities to get to know you too. Like I, to, I write a lot of math problems and I'll use my own family and their names in there and the kids. I mean they're second graders, so they're pretty easy to make laugh, thankfully, because my sense of humor is a little rough, but. They um they really appreciate that, you know, when I make up a word problem about my daughter Ryan eating twenty seven chocolate bars and I would said, What are you doing eating twenty seven chocolate bars? Like they think that's hilarious when that's in a math problem. So it's it's knowing your audience and knowing your kids. It's going to make school, even if school and academics is hard for them, if you know that kid and they know that you care about them, they're gonna find a way to make school good for themselves that day.
0: Absolutely. What is the best advice you've ever received, whether it be from a colleague, a supervisor, or maybe even from a student?
1: My favorite piece of advice is something that came out of my time, um, and I'm, I'm still in this. Is the Johnson City Technology Academy? It's a leadership opportunity for technology in Johnson City schools, and I actually think it was another teacher who said it, so I, I might give credit to the wrong person. But Dr. Dave Tim has. Said to pick one tool and get to know it really well. And I think that's especially become important because we've had even more technology thrown at us in the last two years than we had in the last five years. And it feels really overwhelming. Like you have to be the expert in all of these things. And you maybe look at your colleagues and they've got like these, their kids are on, you know, this and that and the other thing. And they're canvassing and they're Googling and they're doing all the things with their kids. And it's, it may feel like you have to do all those things too. But you're going to do yourself a disservice if you do that. You pick one tool. Get to know it really well. Get your kids to know it really well. And then you can start adding more to your plate. And I think that advice works for any piece in teaching. If you are not going to be able to compare yourself to someone who's been teaching 27 years, especially if they've been in the same grade for a significant amount of time, um, let yourself become an expert in the pieces. And then soon you will be that guru. But you got to give yourself the grace and the time to become an expert in all those pieces. That those 27 years, that's a lot of learning in there, and you're not going to be able to make that happen in two years. So pick one thing, become a master, and also give yourself some grace.
0: That's great advice. So the school year goes in waves. There are those days and weeks where we struggle to survive, whether it be report cards, conferences, uh, those times where everything piles up on us. What is something that you think every educator needs to hear in that moment so that they can power up?
1: That it's hard. I think sometimes you just need to hear that, like, yeah, this is hard. This is hard. And this is the unfun part of your job. Um, Because, I mean, really, the fun part is the actual teaching. Um, The grading and the parent conferences are valuable. And when you're done, you're like, I know this better. But, um, you know, I learned something with that kid. Or now I know what to teach them. But those are the hard parts of your job. And it's okay to call them hard. And it's okay to say that you don't like them. (laughs) But just remember... Why you're here, and ultimately, it's for those you know those five to six hours that you have those kids sitting in front of you, and they're doing the activities that you plan, and you're having those awesome conversations where you're like, "Wow, your brain is so cool." That those keep that in mind when you're slogging through the grading, and you're writing the report card comments, or you're scheduling parent conferences, or you're counting field trip money, um, or you're tidying up um, for the 18th time that day because they never seem to put the recycling in the recycling bin; they always put garbage in the recycling bin. Things like that, um, just remember that why you're actually there because there's a bigger picture than that nitty gritty that you're stuck in
0: right perfect, now. so last question it's easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. What do you think separates teachers who are constantly seeking change, innovation, and applying new teaching strategies?
1: I think those are teachers that recognize that routine is valuable, but there are ways to make um, even those routines innovative. So setting up a basic classroom daily routine and and things like that are going to help you get through your day better. But ultimately, if you're following the exact same activities and, you know, there isn't any newness to anything, your kids are going to fall into some complacency too. I've never been that teacher who teaches um, you know, the same lesson, the same way every year, there's always something that they change. And every year I'm like, Oh, do I, I do this to myself. But ultimately, I do this to myself, because it drives me to learn more. And it pushes my kids to do things in different ways, and new ways. So as much as it's like, nice to be able to like pull out your lesson on, um, you know, animal classification, or your unit from animal classification from last year, and just roll through it the exact same way. Ultimately, that's, that's, for me, it tends to be kind of stifling. So I may pull out that unit and then take a look at it and determine what's worth keeping and what was, you know, not useful or, you know, just maybe re- redo the whole thing. So I end up ultimately end up making a lot more work for myself, but that's what keeps me learning and that's what keeps me um, fresh and it keeps my students learning and it keeps my students doing new and interesting things as well. So, I mean, partly that's just personality for me is I kind of get a little bored doing the same thing every year. and I mean, it also would rely on me to be a little bit more organized from year to year to keep the things in a way where I can find them next year. So that's also part of my barrier. So that's maybe why I might be considered a little bit more innovative as part of its organization piece too. But technology has helped me a lot with that. Um, But yeah, I think when when you're pulling out the same lesson plan from five years ago, I really think you need to ask yourself if you're actually teaching the kids that are sitting in front of you. It's important to make sure you're teaching those, those people that are right there now, not the kids you had five years ago, because they're just, I think kids have changed in a lot in the last five years when I think about what it was like to teach five years ago. Um, not necessarily for the worst. I know a lot of people are like, my kids aren't okay. And there are some things that our kids, you know, going through COVID, there's, we're going to see some trauma response for sure. But, you know, my kids are more capable with their technology than they ever have been before. Um, and a lot of them are just really happy. Be at school in some sort of normal capacity so I think that um there's some benefits there as well but ultimately I think you just yeah make sure you're teaching your students and that that's gonna keep you innovative because if you're teaching the kids and the interests that are sitting in front of you and the abilities that are sitting in front of you you're not gonna necessarily be able to do things the same way as you happened five years ago or two years ago like I was pulling out my third grade tub so I was going through my stool stash in the basement looking for like what could help and it was like what I kept and what I got rid of was actually incredible. Like the stack of what I kept is about this big and that what I got rid of is totes of things. So it just, I just don't think it's going to fit these kids and I know that it, I will never probably go through them again in the future. So I think just, it's just easier and better for you I think as an, as an educator to stay sharp. And that's, that's tricky because that's a big demand on your personal time to rejig and reframe. And I think that's why it's really important to, have a community and a collaborative team and people that you can work with to continue to push yourselves. And I mean, that's another reason why too, is I, I have people that I go to and I say, Kind of, you know what doing this? And then I'm saying, instead of them saying, well, we did it this way last year. I've always worked with people that say, yeah, let's try it. So that mm-hmm. helps too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a huge piece in, in having that collaborative team. So if our audience wants to connect and, and follow along with you, what are the best ways for them to, to reach out and, and follow along with your, your journey as an educator? Um,
1: probably on Twitter. That's probably the, that's mostly my professional one. And I have to actually look up what my handle is on this. It's not bad. <laughs> I think it's Rankin misses, rank and M misses. We'll see. We'll see. One second. Who am I on Twitter? Yes. At Rankin M misses. That's my Twitter handle.
0: Okay. So we will, we'll link up to all of that on our show notes page, which can be found at power up.com slash show 84. Morgan, thank you so much for, for joining us. I really had enjoyed this conversation. Your kids are clearly very lucky to have you have you again for, for another year um, and your your school, your district, and your state is very fortunate to have you as a part of their organization and and, um, and just doing good things for education and making sure that it's it's the best place it, it can be for, for our students today and tomorrow. So thank you so much for everything that you do. If you have not already or this is the first time you're listening to us, please consider hitting subscribe, whether that be on YouTube or your podcast platform of choice. Everything you want to find out about us can be found on social media, which is at Power EDU Up or on our website, which is powereduup.com. So all of our stuff is there. Reach out, follow along, and continue to join in our conversations, not for the benefit of me, but for the benefit of you, because we have unbelievable educators on almost every week, like we have Morgan with us right now. So be sure to tune in and and join in the conversations and, and just hear the incredible insight, advice, and strategies that they're using on a daily basis in their classroom. So Morgan, thank you again. I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer, and I hope you have an awesome uh, school year as we we jump into that. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me. This was awesome.
0: Absolutely. So we are going to power down this episode, and thank you for leaving us powered up. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week, we get to talk to amazing educators who are making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.